Hello and welcome to the London School of Theology podcast. You are listening to our weekly chapel service. London School of Theology. Forming disciples. Resourcing churches. Impacting society. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and a scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. It's good to see you. I hope hope you can understand me. English is my second language. (laughs) I was born in Australia. (laughs) Let me tell you a story. As a boy in the 1950s, I went with my parents to a county agricultural show. There were rides and horse racing and farm machinery and prize animals on display. My mother gave me a florin, a two shilling piece, now a 20p piece. I don't know what she expected me to spend it on, perhaps something to eat or a toy. The British and Foreign Bible Societies, it was then called, had set up a stall selling Bibles. I loved books. I tentatively looked over what they had. A gospel of Mark was sixpence. I bought it and wandered off. I hadn't gone very far when I stopped and thought, I really would like a copy of all four of them. I went back and handed over the rest of my money and got the other three. When I got home, I read one of the little books and I was so deeply saddened by it. Here it is deeply saddened by it. Jesus had just gotten going and seemed to have so much more to do, but for no reason they killed him. I read another and another, all four of them. From that time of reading these four little books till this day, I have been captivated by the story of Jesus and his person. A decade later, I had a Damascus Road conversion experience. You also will have been changed by the Jesus they killed too soon. We go on being changed by Jesus. I think it's significant that we begin this year in chapel with a series of talks on Luke's story of Jesus because more than any other gospel writer, Luke makes it so very explicit 
what he thinks the impact of Jesus should have on our lives. We know very little about Luke, which probably doesn't matter, we're not doing an essay. We're fairly certain that he wrote Luke and Acts. We can't work out when he wrote, maybe it was in the 80s or maybe even the 130s. We can't work out whether he was Jewish or not. He seems to know a lot about Syrian Antioch, so maybe he came from there. It used to be thought that Luke was a doctor. Colossians 4.14 talks about Luke the physician. But Luke wasn't an uncommon name. And a century ago, the Harvard University prof, uh, Henry Cadbury, showed that the language of Luke wasn't particularly medical. Luke may have been a companion of Paul, but some of those who write fat books on this are not so sure. But we do know what Luke wrote And we also know why he wrote. And he also tells us why that matters. Just what Luke wrote, New Testament specialists have taken a long time to figure out what you could have told them. In his Gospel, Luke is writing a biography of Jesus. We've been taught since Sunday school days that Luke's second volume is the history of the early church. But if you take another look, He's actually still writing biography, mini biographies. Peter, the apostles, Stephen, Philip, Barnabas, Paul, the obvious examples. And there are so many other thumbnail, sketches, tiny, tiny biographies across his Gospel of Acts. But why did Luke write these mini biographies, especially of Jesus? At least two reasons. One reason Luke wrote a biography of Jesus and Peter and Paul, for example, was the same reason that other people at the same time were writing biographies. Biographers expected that their readers would take up their characters as models for their lives. The other reason why Luke writes many biographies blows me away. First, let me tell you, a fast and fail-safe way to um, mark a student's essay. You look at the bibliography. That will tell you if the student is reading the right stuff. You look at the footnotes. That will tell you if the student is actually using the breadth of resources mentioned in the bibliography. And you can see if the student is taking care over the details or is sloppy. You look at the introduction. That tells you whether the student knows what's important in the topic and what they're going to do. And you see if the student's organised. Then all you need to do is look at, the in, look at the conclusion. That will tell you if the student has kept to the point of the essay or has gotten lost along the way. What if we did this with Luke? Well, he hasn't provided a bibliography, but it's pretty clear that he's plagiarised Mark than some other source. He also quoted a lot of the Old Testament, but he doesn't very often tell us where he got it from. His introduction seems clear enough. He tells us that he's done some research. He tells us that he's going to order his material sequentially. What about his conclusion? That turns out to be a problem and will cost Luke marks. Here's how he ends. 
Paul lived there under house arrest two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. That's it. It's clearly rushed. Last minute job. (laughs) Did he run out of candles? (laughs) Did he mean to write another chapter or, or another book? Perhaps he submitted his project before he had time to write what he intended to conclude. Or maybe we lost it. Probably not. Listen to this. You can preach this. Classicists have made a study of particular texts, some of them from the same time as Luke. They looked closely at texts that stop in the same strange way that Luke ends his second volume. What the classicists have discovered is that some ancient writers stop their story mid-story, listen to this, expecting the readers to carry on the story in their own lives. That's the preachable bit. Through this abrupt ending, Luke is inviting his readers, us, to carry on the story in our own lives. But it's not just any story, like a child's choose-your-own-ending storybook. It's this story that's to be our story. Luke is saying the story that he echoes about God's work of the Spirit in the Old Testament, the story of the Spirit's work in John the Baptist, then in Jesus, then in Peter, then the Apostles, then Paul, that's the story. Those are the biographies that can be, that should be carried on in the reader's lives. I find that moving and exhilarating. Now that I know this about Luke's ending, I want his his project second marked so we can get a distinction. (laughs) Knowing that Luke is writing, expecting his readers, us, to continue his story in our own lives makes sense of a strange line in the first couple of lines of his second volume. He says, in the first book I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. The obvious implication is that the story he's about to tell of the lives of the followers of Jesus after Easter is a continuation of the ministry of Jesus. Luke's clever point is that in his story of Jesus, we are seeing a model for his followers And in Acts, we're reading of Jesus being modelled. And with that uh, invitation of the open ending of Acts, Luke is expecting Jesus still to be working in the lives of his readers. Now Luke doesn't want to leave too much to chance in our carrying on the story of Jesus in our own lives. Maybe we get the wrong bits. To draw attention to the parts of his story that are particularly important to be carried on, Luke gives pair after pair after pair of parallels between Jesus and his followers. There are very many of these parallels. Academics write books about them and maybe there's a level six project here somewhere. At least as I read uh, Luke and Acts, there seem to be a number of parallels. I'll mention five that are particularly important to Luke. Now, I think if we pay attention to those five parallels, 
We'll be off to a good start in knowing what it would look like if we were to carry on Luke's story of Jesus in our lives. Here we go, first one. Spiritual empowerment. The very conception of Jesus involves the Holy Spirit. The angel says to his mum, Mary, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. The Spirit descends at Jesus at baptism. Luke says that Jesus returns from his baptism full of the Holy Spirit. He's led by the Spirit for 40 days in the wilderness. When Jesus begins his ministry, he's said to be in the power of the Spirit. And in the synagogue, Jesus owns the various lines he reads out from Isaiah, which begin, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me. So Luke is portraying Jesus' early life and the inauguration of his ministry as charged, if you like, by the Spirit's activity. And Luke portrays the early church as paralleling this. You'll know that on the day of Pentecost, all the followers of Jesus were filled with the Spirit. Peter, filled with the Spirit, stands up and speaks to the crowd. Peter says the Spirit is the Spirit's coming is associated with the offer of release or forgiveness, the words of Ephesus. That's exactly the same word that Andrew read out from the story of Jesus' first sermon. So for Luke, there are two great and obvious bursts of the activity of the Spirit. One at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, or life and ministry, and one at the beginning of the life of the followers together, the beginning of Acts. But... If you look a little bit more closely, you'll see that Luke has other outbursts of the Spirit. Turn a couple of pages beyond the Pentecost story. Peter and John have been released from prison. They're in a prayer meeting. Luke says this, When they had prayed, the place where they were was shaken, and they were all filled with the Spirit and spoke the word of God with boldness. Turn a few more pages. You get to Philip. He's in a city in Samaria. There's a loud, there's loud shrieking as spirits are exorcised. Paralysed and lame people are cured. There's great joy in the city. Peter and John come from Jerusalem, lay hands on folk to receive the spirit. Again, something obvious has happened. Simon the magician is pretty impressed. Then if you read the story of the household of Cornelius, there's another dramatic coming of the spirit. Luke says that while Peter was speaking to those who had gathered... The Holy Spirit fell on all who heard. And you'll know that there are other stories of the coming of the Spirit described or implied by Luke. With all these parallels between Jesus and his followers and that invitation of the open ending, the readers of Luke could hardly avoid concluding that the obvious gift, filling and empowerment of the Spirit should be, could be expected in their lives, our lives. Another family of parallels in Luke Acts, talking about the good news. Hardly need me to tell you that Luke depicts Jesus teaching in the synagogues, in the temple, from a boat, in the street, in the villages. And in Acts, Luke says Peter and John teach, and the apostles teach in the temple, in Jerusalem. Then Luke says the apostles and Peter and John, those scattered from Jerusalem and Philip, preach the good news. Barnabas and Paul teach for a whole year in Antioch. As we know, Acts ends with Paul in Rome teaching. 
And so the parallels go on and on and on. You can see that this family of parallels shows that, that just as Jesus had good news to talk about, so do his followers, so do we. I remember reading a small book by Michael Green. He was a prolific Christian writer and the rector of St. Aldous in Oxford in the 70s and 80s. There was a line in his book, perhaps it was called Evangelism Now and Then, I can't remember, but a line in that book marked my mind indelibly. We often talk about how important it is to live a consistent godly life so that people will be attracted to Jesus. And I think that's right. But Michael Green said this, presence without proclamation is a failure. We might not be very articulate or have much to say, but just a little of our story can be so helpful in communicating the good news to someone. One Sunday in a particular church, there's a woman who sang on the worship team. She'd been a drug addict. At this point, she had HIV. During the service, she briefly told her story of how she became a follower of Jesus. A street person named Roger was standing up the back, listening. After church was over, he approached John, one of the ministry team members. Uh, John was tired. When Roger got close, the smell took John's breath away. Urine, sweat, garbage, alcohol. John knew that Roger wanted money. After a few words, John reached into his pocket and pulled out some money. John's body language must have communicated the message, here's some money, now get out of here. Because Roger looked at John, put his finger in his face and said, I don't want your money. I'm going to die out there. I want to meet the Jesus that girl talked about. Part of our story is telling our story. Even here at LST, graciously and humbly, tell bits and pieces of the story of Jesus in your life. Another family of parallels that Luke is keen about won't surprise you, healing and exorcism. The first thing that Jesus does after announcing his ministry through reading and explaining those passages from Isaiah is cast out a demon. And there follows, as you know, story after story after story of Jesus healing the sick and exorcising demons. In fact, on in Acts, Luke sums up Jesus' ministry with a very simple statement. Jesus went about doing good, healing all who were oppressed by the devil. That's how important Luke sees healing and exorcism in Jesus' ministry to be. It sums it up. And when we turn to Acts, we see the same kinds of things. There's a story of Peter and John healing the lame man at the temple gate. A couple of pages on, Luke says people even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and pallets so that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might pass on them. They They thought the shadow was part of the person, like us laying hands on someone. Luke goes on to say the people also gathered from towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. 
In fact, it's remarkable how close the vocabulary is between how Luke describes Jesus' miracles and how he describes Peter's miracles. In Philip's ministry, unclean spirits come out of many. Many who were lame were healed. In Joppa, Peter raises a dead girl. Luke says that at Ephesus, God did extraordinary miracles by the hand of Paul, so that handkerchiefs or aprons were carried away from his body to the sick and diseases left them and evil spirits came out of them. And Luke's readers will remember, and you can remember as well, there's a story in the Gospel about a woman touching the hem of a garment and she was healed. These parallels are reinforcing Luke's view that we see in the invitation of his, of his open ending. Jesus was involved in healing and exorcism. The early Christians were involved in exorcism and healing. The readers are to be involved in healing and exorcism. Now, I know nothing of that is new to you. But somehow in most of our churches, it turns out we're much better about talking about Jesus than in bringing the healing of Jesus to people. Maybe, as we're able, we should do something about that. Well, if I, you, if I were you, I'd be feeling rather smug that I already knew all that. Spirit empowerment, talking about the good news, healing and exorcism, a part of Jesus' ministry, early church, and the readers. But I'm surprised about two other families of parallels. Here's number four. Parallels in prayer. Of all the gospel writers, for Luke, prayer is remarkably important in his portrait of Jesus and his followers. When the heavens open and the spirit descends, what's Jesus doing? He's praying. Before choosing the twelve from among the crowd of disciples, Luke says Jesus spent a whole night in prayer. In relation to other important times, Jesus prays. At his baptism, Jesus Alone before speaking to the disciples about his death, he prays. As he was transfigured, he was Praise. about his willingness to die, he Praise. and before his arrest. Praise. Okay. In Acts, after the ascension, the first thing the eleven do, along with the women and Jesus' mother and his brothers, Luke says, is with one accord they devoted themselves to prayer. On the day of Pentecost, when the followers of Jesus are waiting for the Spirit, they're described as? Yeah, he's praying. Then there's Paul, after his conversion. He's in Damascus. He's praying. After he had appointed elders in the churches, Paul and the others prayed for them. In Philippi, Paul and those with him joined a prayer meeting they found by the river. When they're in prison, Paul and Silas pray. They sing as well. Throughout Acts, at key points and ordinary points, the followers of Jesus are depicted just like him as praying. So it's really easy to arrive at the point of seeing that for Luke, prayer is, to be, is one of those signature, defining characteristics of a follower of Jesus. Who's your spiritual hero? It's highly likely, think of the person, it's highly likely that person is or was when they were alive if they're no longer with us. 
that prayer was very important to that person. C.F.D. Mole of Cambridge died a few years ago. I was deeply impressed by Charlie. He was my academic grandfather. He supervised the person who supervised my PhD research. Here's the thing. Never in Charlie's adult life did he ever miss a day in taking time to pray. Charlie is a great model for me. Perhaps you have a model like that who draws you to make prayer a must, a daily must. Well, here's the last family of Luke's parallels that we'll mention. It's the one we might miss. I miss it on a first read. Parallel qualities. In our culture, numbers matter. How many people in church last Sunday? How many were converted through our church last month or last year? Is the offering up to budget? They're good questions. And we know from the way Luke counts, he would have counted how many people were converted last year in your church as well. But Luke was more than a numbers man. Character or personal qualities are particularly important to Luke. One of the great parallel qualities between Jesus and his followers is, as you'll probably guess, a willingness to suffer. Jesus suffered and died. The story of Stephen and his death in the early chapters of Acts strangely echoes that of Jesus. And you'll know of the joke that when Paul ended up in, t- uh, in a town, he went to the synagogue and then he was flogged and imprisoned or both. And there are many other parallels of character or quality of person that Luke draws between Jesus and, the follower, and his followers. We could think of parallels of wisdom, of power, of grace, of favour, of fear, reverence. There's one parallel that we might miss, and I think it is actually the most important personal quality that Luke draws attention to. It's the quality of joy or gladness. The very coming of Jesus is met with great gladness or joy. When Elizabeth meets Mary, the unborn John, the Baptist, leaps for joy in her womb. Mary responds by saying that her spirit rejoices in God, her Saviour. And those three famous parables, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son, are laced with experience and expression of joy. The crowd of disciples welcoming Jesus on his triumphal entry into Jerusalem rejoices at the end of the Gospel of Luke when he says Jesus was carried up into heaven. You'd expect there'd be a note of sadness, of loss. Not at all. Luke says, having worshipped him, the disciples returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. So important is this point of joy in relation to Jesus and his followers that Luke uses all the different words he possibly can for it. And on my count, there are half a dozen different joy-related words in Luke's Gospel that the other two synoptic Gospels don't get to. When we turn the page to Acts, There's also a great catalogue of stories characterised by joy. Here are some of them. On the day of Pentecost, Peter spoke of the resurrection and the gladness and joy of it. The first Christians are said to eat together with gladness. Incredibly, 
even before the apostles are back home and able to lick their wounds after being flogged by the Sanhedrin. Luke has this line. As they left the council, they rejoiced that they were considered worthy to suffer, etc. In Philip's ministry in Samaria, there was great joy resulting from that ministry. When the Gentiles hear that Paul's message applies to them, they're not only filled with the Spirit, they're filled with joy. We'll stop there. It's very clear that even in this, the face of writing an essay, Luke would expect us to be joyful. When we lived in the United States, I became very impressed with John McCain, one of the senators from Arizona. Christmas 1971, John McCain was a prisoner of war in Vietnam. On this particular Christmas, John and two dozen other freezing prisoners huddled together to celebrate Christmas in their tattered clothing. For some of them, those who'd been in solitary confinement, this was the first time in seven years that they'd been together. Physically, they were skin and bone, shadows of their former selves. Some were weak, some couldn't stand up. But their frail and croaky voices gladly tried to sing, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. At one point, they even exchanged imaginary gifts that they had found in this bare cell and offered to each other. John read snatches of the Christmas story that had been able to copy out on a piece of paper from a Bible that he was allowed to have for a few minutes. An angel of the Lord said to them, John read out, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings. And tears rolled down their unshaven faces. Some years later, John said this, We had forgotten our wounds, our hunger, our pain. There was an absolute exquisite feeling that all our burdens had been lifted. He said the Vietnamese guards didn't disturb us, but as I looked at the barred windows, I wished they had looked in. I wanted them to see, he said. I wanted them to see us joyful and, yes, triumphant. Through so very many parallels, Luke has gone to great lengths to show not only the char that character matters, but that the disposition of joy is particularly important. We're winding down, it's okay. Some years ago, there used to be a discussion amongst academics as to whether Luke's Gospel and his Book of Acts are descriptive or prescriptive. From what we've seen, I would think Luke would say, well, it's both. Over the semester, the chapel speakers will be taking us to various passages in Luke's story about Jesus. We now know that Luke is not simply telling a story of the life and ministry of Jesus. Through his biography and through his biographies, through that little saying that his gospel was just the beginning of the ministry of Jesus, through the parallels that we've mentioned, and through that wonderful open-ended invitation, we can see that Luke is wanting us, the readers, to carry on his story 
as our story. Perhaps I should speak for myself. For sometimes I genuinely have wondered and struggled to see how so much of what I read in Luke's Gospel, which he underlines in the way that we've seen, can really be carried on in the 21st century. Are we Christians blind? Can it really be carried on? If we were writing an essay, I think we might be talking about the hermeneutical problem of fusing two horizons of the then and now. An experience some years ago changed my hermeneutics. For a number of years, I was a Uniting Church minister in Adelaide, South Australia. The Uniting Church is the URC Church, the United Reformed Church, and the Methodists together. Ours was a gently charismatic church. You'd see one or two people with their hands in the air as, as we worshipped. Over six years, the church had grown considerably. One August, Brian and Thora Anderson from North Phoenix, Arizona, Vineyard, and their team of ten lay people came for a visit. On the Wednesday night, the Thursday night, and the Friday night, between two and three hundred people came to worship and to learn. So significant was what took place that I wrote a long letter to a friend describing the Spirit falling on us as I had never seen before. And this week I went back to that letter and I'll tell you what I wrote. Not all of it, it's too long. <laughs> At the end of his talks, uh, Brian asked those to stand who would like a touch from the Lord, as he put it. Almost everyone seemed to stand. Within a few minutes, there were dozens and dozens of nice, traditional Christians lying on the floor, night after night. They were weeping, they were chuckling, they were laughing loudly, they were groaning, a few screaming, many gently rocking and swaying, some shaking. One young man shaking up and down like a pogo stick for one hour. Others staggered as if drunk. It's not in my letter, but I remember someone had to be driven home because they just couldn't drive. Some lay on the floor motionless for up to an hour, sometimes more. For the sake of their personal dignity, two or three people had to be taken out, either to be freed from the demonic or have some uh, personal issue dealt with. A few older people had chairs hurriedly brought to them so they could sit down and rest shaking on them. I should, should have mentioned that the chairs like this were pushed aside so that we could manage what was taking on. And you can imagine that so very many people were changed I'll tell you just a one person story from that night, on the Sunday night. Over the three services that Sunday, my letter says there were 925 people in church. At the evening service, where this fellow was, there were 452 people. Well, this long haired, um, bearded man in his 30s, whom I'd never met, was pointed out to me. He was standing towards the back. Um, with people all around him on the floor. His head was bowed and his hands were clasped in front of him, just like I am. 
I went over and asked him a couple of questions to see what was going on for him. I suggested he hold out his hands in front of him as if to receive a gift, and I said if what I prayed made sense, that he could say that in his mind. His right hand began to shake from side to side, about like this. There was an incredible amount of perspiration that appeared. His balding head was just droplets of water over it, and his body became hot to touch through his clothing. His nose began to run. He wasn't crying, but water was running out of his eyes and his bushy beard became soggy. I wiped his face and his eyes and his nose a number of times. Then he seemed to get shorter and shorter and his knees gave way, eventually he fell back. But his neck was tense and his head didn't fall back at all. I got down on the floor and all the noise in the room, I yelled into his ear, is there anything else I can pray for? And he mumbled something, pardon? (laughs) My addiction, drugs. The church elder on the other side and I prayed for a little longer that God would bring release and his head dropped back into my hand. After a few more minutes, he got up and crossed his legs. Now my letter doesn't say this, but from my memory, he said this. Oh, I used to pay a lot of money to feel this good. (laughs) I beckoned to his wife just over there. She was a very new Christian herself and she was crying. And they sat on the floor and embraced. The next day they came to see me. He brought a large, big, black trash bin bag full of cannabis and his brass pipe. I won't be needing this. For 22 years, he told me he had been addicted to drugs. From that day, he never touched drugs again. He did struggle with traditional cigarettes for about 18 months. Those few days changed the life of that church. Those few days changed my hermeneutics as well. Suddenly, Luke's world was unexpectedly my world. Luke's invitation for the story of Jesus to be carried on in our lives and my lives now seemed less problematic. So I would urge you as we listen to the speakers through this term, tell us of Jesus in Luke, to be ready to carry on what we're going to read. I'm done. Would you like to stand so we can pray and worship? (coughs) Father, thank you for Luke's gospel. Thank you that the story that he tells of the dear Lord Jesus is not locked, hermeneutically blocked, but you are still here. And the life of the early Christians can still be our lives. I pray, Lord Jesus, that by your spirit you'll open us up to all that you have for us. Come, Lord Jesus. Please help us to be people of joy. 
Please help us to take a risk and pray for the sick. Give us courage to tell little bits of our story. We thank you for what you've done for us. We think of John McCain's story. Thank you that you also have rescued us. We love you and we worship you. Thank you for listening to the London School of Theology podcast. To find out more about LST and our courses, please visit our website.